You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Morning, everybody. Um, uh, what an unexpected thing to be um, undertaking. Uh, I don't think six weeks ago, if we'd invited you to a, a, a session to resolve um, what we thought was going to happen in the Trump administration. And I don't think he would have known many of the answers either. Um, uh, it, it's, um, we've got 500 online viewers, so um, uh, good morning or evening to you. Um, absolutely delighted to uh, see um, that uh, Professor Rubin is there out in... Not sure where you are, Rubin. Can you tell us? Um, I'm in my home office in uh, Washington, D.C. Well, it's very good of you because I make it out to be um, quarter to five. That's right. Oh, you thank see you. my time. I don't see very, my very pants that I'm wearing underneath. <laughs> extremely good of you. Uh, uh, Ambassador Brigitte is the dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. Um, I only bring him in because it's, uh, I feel any man who's up at quarter to five deserves the first um, introduction. Um, <laughs> but actually, what we're going to do is just do a thumbnail response from each of our um, participants today from the panel um, to um, just give their idea of what's going to happen to their bit of the world that they have expertise in. And I'll start by introducing Ambassador Susan Page. Uh, she was until two weeks ago U.S. Charge d'Affaires to the African Union. Uh, before her uh, appointment, Ambassador Page uh, served as senior advisor uh, in the office of the Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, and also led the Security uh, Governance Initiative team for Ghana. Uh, previously, um, she was America's first ambassador to South Sudan, so she's a bed of nails person. Um, uh, and perhaps you'd just like to um, give your thumbnail sketch of what you think Trump means for Africa. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Ruben, it's great to see you on the screen. Um, well, as, as you said, uh, I don't think most of us were expecting that we would be discussing this. And I think that actually leads me into what I would say about Africa policy. Um, in previous administrations, during the elections, regardless of which side you were mm -hmm. voting for, people had a pretty good idea of who would be at the top of the leaderboard in terms of cabinet positions. Maybe not everyone known, but you had a pretty good idea of a small subset of people. But three weeks in, uh, and Trump still has not named his cabinet pick for Secretary of State, which for us, um, concerned about Africa, makes us even further wonder who will, who will be the next Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. And both Ruben and I served as Deputy Assistant Secretaries um, uh, in the Bureau of African Affairs, so we know what importance this, this has and signifies. Um, I think it's also telling that in the first uh, week after Trump's election victory, he spoke with uh, a number of world leaders, but not one of the 29 world leaders that he spoke to was from Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, again, that seems to signify quite a lot. Um, and then lastly, the people on the continent who have been quite supportive and actively sending in um, congratulatory messages, which of course is standard practice, but 
the congratulatory messages that are a little bit more um, uh, winsome and um, <laughs> uh, happy are from some of the leaders that we would consider to not be so overly democratic. Um, some of this seems to be that they uh, are tired of this push for democracy and governance that has been really actually a pretty bipartisan view. Um, and so they're thinking, good, it'll be back to sovereignty for us because Trump doesn't know much about Africa, so won't care so much about the details, doesn't have a lot of the um, temperament or the time to spend on the details about Africa, and so won't be in their business as much. Um, so leaders, just to give you a sense, um, uh, President Kabila in the DRC, uh, President Nkurunziza in Burundi, uh, President Salva Kiir, uh, opposition leader Riyak Mashar, uh, Chad Zidris Debi all sent fairly effusive letters to President Trump congratulating him on his brilliant victory. Um, so what does that mean? I think in brief, we will probably be challenged by a lack of focus on democracy and governance. Um, there may be some rollback on that. I do think that he will probably continue the focus on counterterrorism, especially defeating uh, Boko Haram and al-Shabaab, uh, which could then also play um, a bigger role for AFRICOM. Um, but that could also lead to less protections for civilians and human rights, which he has talked about quite aggressively uh, in terms of uh, wanting to ratchet up torture and other uh, inhumane treatment. Um, I think he's going to, and I'll leave this to Alex, but I think he might uh, try to um, cut back on foreign assistance because he's supposedly trying to make America strong again and great again, and that means a refocus on our own U.S. roads and infrastructure and whatnot. Um, so we may be facing more of an isolationist policy um, that could lead to uh, less stable and secure countries on the continent. So that's a bit worrying. And then I would just say that, you know, having said all of that, Africa has largely been very bipartisan in the last um, 50 years, where uh, Congress has, especially during the Obama administration, actually pushed harder for certain things against countries in Africa that were not leaning towards democracy and governance and also force the administration to speak up in times when perhaps to keep a good security relationship with them, they have not been as outspoken. So I think Congress will continue to play that role, and at least I hope so, that that should help to keep some balance. I'll stop there. Thank you, Susan. And I loved the diplomatic way in which you introduced the leaders who um, had sent their effusive um, I, I now see how the telegrams are constructed. <laughs> uh, You've um, read WikiLeaks. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go now to um, Maha Yahya. She is the director of the Carnegie Middle East Center. Her research focuses on citizenship, pluralism, and social justice in the aftermath of the Arab uprising. Um, Maha, I think you are somewhere in the Arab world. Is it Doha? No, I'm, hi, hello everybody, and thank you for inviting me to be on this panel. I'm actually in Beirut at the Carnegie oh. Middle East Center. We're based in Beirut. Excellent, excellent. Um, do, you, do you want just to give us a sense of uh, what you think a Trump uh, presidency means for the Middle East? Just a thumbnail? 
Uh, a quick thumbnail. I mean, at this point, we're obviously going back. Uh, we're going by his campaign promises. Um, and it's a policy, from what we can tell, that's going to be full of contradictions at best. Um, for example, one particular contradiction in all of his rhetoric, there's a clear move where uh, to continue subcontracting the region uh, to Russia. I mean, subcontracting it even more uh, to Russia in a sense. What this means, for example, on Syria, that uh, uh, his preference for uh, Russia is also means a preference for uh, Iran. Uh, because Iran and Russia are partners in Syria. Um, he favors the uh, Bashar al-Assad as his ally in a fight against ISIS. However, Bashar al-Assad is also part of this pro-Iranian coalition uh, that includes Bashar al-Assad, Hezbollah, and Iran uh, and Russia in uh, Syria itself. So basically... Um, Along, I mean, at the same time, so the, the anti-Iranian rhetoric, which a lot of uh, many members of his uh, team have been pushing forward, is coming at odds with his push to empower Russia even more in the region. Um, he's been very adamant about wanting to roll back on the Iranian deal. After the election, he's now talking not about rolling back, but perhaps... Um, uh, being more vigilant about some of the things included in the deal. That in itself would be very difficult because the deal itself is a P5 plus one. It's not a, uni it's not a bilateral uh, agreement between the U.S. And, uh, and Iran. At the same time, another perhaps key contradiction in some of the things that have come out of his uh, during his campaign, but also uh, in the... Um, uh, and the positions of, I mean, both in his appointments, but also in the positions that he's taken, which is, um, on the one hand, in the fight against ISIS, he they continuously say that there is a need for close cooperation uh, uh, from the Arab uh, governments, particularly Gulf countries. Um, I mean, this is one area where Trump would like to be more interventionist. I'm not sure how, because I don't think they can be more interventions than they already are, but unless they're willing to put boots on the ground, which they're not. So if there are going to be boots on the ground, it would be Gulf countries. And yet at the same time, this is very much at odds with the anti-Muslim rhetoric that has come out uh, in the campaign, but that is also has uh, is a characteristic of many of his appointments since his win. Uh, whether it's Steve Bannon or others. So I think there's a big uh, uh, problem or challenge here in terms of how is he going to square that particular circle. Um, any relationship with such a vehemently anti-Muslim uh, administration is going to undermine Gulf countries, uh, for example, domestically. Um, at the same time... Um, uh, the, um, the the there's, there's I mean the the election of Trump itself was also as was just said uh, in terms of the potential rollback on human rights and uh, civil society 
if you want, uh, not just rights, but this whole democratic agenda. It's very clear that President-elect Trump has very little interest in pushing this agenda forward and is actually most, uh, much more likely to roll back. Now, of course, this is music to the ears of many of the region's strongmen. He has an affinity for strongmen, whether it's Bashar al-Assad or whether it's uh, President Sisi uh, or whether it's many of the Gulf countries. Um, so there is a lot of concern here that we're going to see a greater push against uh, human rights organizations, against civil society, a major rollback on achievements on the democratic agenda that have happened not only over the past five and six years, at least in some countries, but even over the past two decades. Um, we're already seeing some signs of this, whether it's in uh, Egypt, where in the last few days uh, they've passed a much, uh, a much worse NGO law than ever before. There's a larger clampdown on human rights organizations. Or even in Israel, where um, some of the more right-wing uh, uh, elements within uh, the government have now been calling for the legalization of what was considered by the government as illegal outposts. The issue of the Palestinian-Israeli peace deal also is a big uh, conundrum. It's very unlikely that he's going to want to push and be interventionist in that area. Uh, but however, some of the promises he's made during the campaign, uh, if he acts upon them, like moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, will also inflame the situation far more and could uh, not vote well down the road. One last point I would say um, that uh, is of considerable concern is that the combination of anti-Muslim rhetoric, a withdrawal on human rights and a, de a democratic agenda, support for the strongmen in the region um, will mean, I mean, this is music to the ears of extremists. Uh, this is going to increase support uh, and the greater push. I mean, it's it's basically a self-fulfilling prophecy of, look, the West really has abandoned us. They don't care about us. The only people who care about us is the more extreme agenda. And I think down the road, this may make the U.S. itself even more vulnerable uh, because they know that if there's going to be an attack, there's going to be an immediate reaction uh, and it becomes a kind of a vicious circle. I'll leave it at that and we can come back to some of these issues. Gosh, what a, what a tour d'horizon. I mean, thank you very, very much, Maha. Very clear and very, unfortunately, very logical and um, coherent. Uh, let, let's move on then to um, uh, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, Deputy Director General of Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, also Director of its uh, Proliferation and um, Nuclear Policy Programs. Uh, before Rusi, um, he was senior special advisor to the Foreign Office here, to the Foreign Secretaries Jack Straw and Margaret Beckett. Um, and you're going to look at defence and security, Malcolm. Th thank you very much, uh, John. I think looking at this result from the UK, one is bound to put it in the context of our own Brexit referendum on the one hand, and the other hand, the rise of what are sometimes called populist, or I'd say nationalist movements, in the rest of Europe, we have an Austrian presidential election, we have a very important French presidential election coming up, and so on and so forth. And it's a reflection, I think, the American result is in part a reflection of the, 
of the increasing centrality of the tension between nationalism and internationalism in the domestic politics of many Western countries. And the impact of Trump, I think, in the world will be partly about the interaction of more nationalist governments throughout the Western world, not simply the United States. The United States is the most important country, of course, on so many measures, but it's not entirely an outlier in terms of this political trend. So you have to look at the, that wider trend. And I think the other wide trend it reflects is the increasing importance of strongman politics, perhaps not so much in other Western countries, fortunately, but in countries like Russia and Turkey and Philippines and, and Egypt, as already been mentioned, China to some extent, again and again, the importance of really strong individuals, uh, much more important than in the past, which is to some extent linked to the, to the first trend. So uh, and on a sort of ideological, almost philosophical basis, that's what we've got to grapple with, I think, over the next four years or longer. But actually, I think some of my biggest concerns about the Trump presidency are more uh, personal. <laughs> They're more about uh, Donald Trump's uh, character and whether no matter who his advisors are, he'll be too easily riled by events. Having presidents who tweet in the middle of the night about whatever has offended them during the previous day is not such a good idea. There was a reason why Barack Obama's BlackBerry was taken away from him <laughs> as soon as he became president. Somehow or other, I think Donald Trump will not be separated easily from Twitter. And when his popularity starts to tank, and it will, over some issue or other, who will he blame? When a foreign leader lies to him or tries to get the best of him, will he lash out, as Richard Nixon did in his last days of his presidency? And the reality of foreign policy in the US, like in any other country, is a large part of it is reactive. It's a constant flow of new crises, new problems, most of which can't be solved but only managed, most of which are intensely frustrating. And we can see we, we can't predict what the crisis will be in the next four years. But Afghanistan isn't going so well. The Iran nuclear issue is about to go on the agenda again. There's lots of issues in relation to Russia where perhaps there's a perfect deal out there to be made. I somehow... Uh, doubt it, uh, decisions about North Korea's growing capability of uh, sometime over the next decade to hit the United States with nuclear weapons. And of course, one of the key parts of the American Constitution is that the president has absolute control of US nuclear weapons. Uh, there are no checks and balances in place in terms of control of nuclear weapons. Something deliberately put in place to ensure political control of the military uh, after uh, the, the early experience of a nuclear age. And that doesn't mean I think Donald Trump's going to wake up one day and decide to nuke somebody. No, but I think it is an illustration of the enormous power of the, of the president over military affairs and over conventional forces. And I do worry about a man who loves to show he is winning, uh, who will have control of the strongest military forces in the world by a very large margin, but yet is in a world where U.S. relative power, U.S. ability to influence what's happening in other parts of the world is declining and has been declining for some time. There are more powerful actors in many places locally who thwart the American uh, ambitions time and again. It's not simply Obama hasn't been prepared to take steps that are objective uh, obstacles. And whether he will be willing, able to adjust to that constrained reality uh, based on the rise of other powerful centers of power 
remains to be seen. There are some isolationist sounding promises, in particular in relation to alliances, which I am rather skeptical about whether that will be sustained. But I think I worry more about an over-militarized approach to foreign policy rather than an under-militarized approach. And we shall see over the next few days who he appoints to key posts. General Flynn, as his national security advisor, is probably not a good start in that regard. But we're in a remarkable situation which we could still have leading, and I think quite well-respected generals, as both defense secretary and secretary of state and national security advisor. And I never thought I'd be in a situation where actually I think that wouldn't be the worst outcome. Thank you. Very good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, well, uh, our, our next um, thumbnail comes from uh, Alex Tier. He's uh, the incoming executive uh, director of this esteemed organization, the ODI, formerly senior official at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and founder of Triple Helix, a U.S.-based consultancy firm with the mission to increase access to off-grid renewable energy in Africa. Alex, a Trump presidency for international development. What are the implications? Thank you, John. And let me say it's a delight to be here. Uh, although I'm almost officially <laughs> here, I will be here in uh, beginning of January, but uh, I hope that every day, or at least most of them, are like uh, today. Thank you to have such great uh, folks joining us. Um, it's worth going back uh, a year to remember that 2015 uh, was one of the most remarkable years in the history of international development and multilateralism. We had a summit at the United Nations that created uh, and adopted the Sustainable Development Goals uh, that put the idea of ending extreme poverty in our lifetime uh, at the top of the agenda and, and made it actually look possible, uh, that put women and girls uh, at the top of the agenda. You had the summit in Paris uh, with unprecedented international agreement about how to address uh, climate change and prevent its worst possible effects. And you had an international humanitarian summit earlier this year to cope with what is inarguably the worst humanitarian crisis that we have faced um, as a planet, at least since World War II. And so I introduce all of those things because all of that achievement, all of that hope, all of that possibility, one, in part, rests on, in part, American leadership. Uh, because it's not only what the United States does with its money and its troops, uh, but the United States, when it is its best self, has the potential to move the world in positive directions as well as in negative directions. And so I think looking at the deep uncertainty that the world faces uh, with a Trump presidency calls every single one of those potential accomplishments and agreements into question. Um, and the first thing I would say, as has already been said, is that we simply don't know. Um, when you look at uh, the pronouncements during the campaign around uh, foreign policy, and particularly around development policy, uh, it doesn't look good. Uh, we don't want to give money to countries that hate us. We want to bridge, build roads and bridges at home instead of abroad, that sort of rhetoric. But that's stuff actually that we've seen before. And, and in my experience, often conservatives uh, decry foreign aid when they're not in power, and they learn to love it when they are in power, because it's a critical and, and valuable tool. 
and it can do a lot of good and, and win us a lot of friends. And ultimately, uh, when you are in the position of president and secretary of state and you tour the world and you see what's going on and you go to refugee camps, usually the instinct is that we end up wanting to, to help. Um, so you could discount some of that. Um, what I think is really going to be important, though, is, of course, to see who ends up in the positions uh, that are ultimately going to be decisive. And there we've seen a, a, a wide range, a cast of characters who could lead us into the worst possible directions, uh, could get rid of uh, the U United States is still, although the UK is gaining on us, still by far the, the largest bilateral donor in the world. We have huge uh, influence in the World Bank and in the United Nations, um, you could see a lot of that being torn down. Um, in fact, I recently left uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development. It's even possible that that, that that could be folded into the State Department or something like that, but still there would be foreign assistance. Um, on the other hand, there are some people who have been named, including uh, General Petraeus, including, I believe, Mitt Romney, including uh, Senator Bob Corker, who's the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who I worked with a lot directly. These are people who I think know and understand the power of foreign assistance um, and in many ways would be supportive of it. So there's a very big question mark. But what I really uh, uh, worry about is the quixotic the neurotic and the exotic. <laughs> um, the quixotic is that it could really go wildly in different directions. And in fact, you could end up having somebody uh, who, who uh, sort of on a dime turns around and does something drastic just because they want to get rid of something because somebody else supported it without other good reasons. Um, the neurotic, for me, my concern is that I think that we are, we're at risk of seeing U.S. foreign policy and U.S. development policy through a very narrow lens of countering violent extremism. Um, and while it is very important that we use foreign aid well in fragile states and to counter violent extremism, that was a strong policy under past presidents, certainly under President Obama, um, you don't want to strictly instrumentalize all of our assistance uh, to go to that. Um, and then finally, the reason I say the exotic is because, you know, one of the things that when new people come in, sometimes they want to do something crazy or, or fantastic, something different. Um, and we're at a point with U.S. foreign assistance that has been probably the most bipartisan era that we have seen in a long time. This last Congress, which was famous as a do-nothing Congress, passed legislation on global food security, passed legislation on electrifying Africa, things that we didn't think were going to be possible and yet brought huge amounts of support. And I worry that the, that the desire to tear those things down or to do something different will undo what takes many years to put in place, um, and instead we may see uh, the money going elsewhere. Thank you very much, uh, Alex. And now, uh, patiently waiting there, Ruben. Um, Ruben Brigatti, uh, ambassador, joining us via video from Washington, D.C., dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs, foreign policy expert, previously U.S. representative um, to the African Union and the U.N. Economic Commission of Africa. And his earlier roles included deputy assistant secretary of state in the Bureau of African Affairs, as Susan mentioned, and in the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration. So, in a sense, Rubin, I'm wondering whether you are hearing an awful lot of depression from the London end of the equation, and whether, in fact, what might happen is Trump, in some ways, uh, moving into the slipstream of uh, other more recent presidents, 
or whether you too uh, fear uh, that something different might emerge? Well, John, thank you very much. And uh, Alex, uh, Susan, good to see you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Let me start with a couple of disclaimers. Uh, first of all, I did not support President Trump for the presidency of the United States. Uh, and secondly, uh, though in my, my day job is that I am the uh, uh, dean of the Elliott School, which is a nonpartisan position, uh, in my personal life, I consider myself part of the loyal and respectful opposition in the United States. And as a result of that, um, I, and I, I put that out there so you have a very uh, clear sense of, of my analysis initially of, of what uh, Trump foreign policy can look like. Let me also say that I also agree fundamentally with President Obama that it is, it is very important for President Trump to succeed uh, for America and also for our allies around the world. Now, what success looks like, obviously, uh, is a matter of interpretation. For me, the, the biggest concern is that it does not appear that President-elect Trump has a considered worldview. Of, of, of any sort. And as a result, uh, we really do not know what he's going to do. Uh, this matters for a variety of reasons. In some ways, I actually would be more comfortable if he were a dedicated ideological neocon, for example, because we would then have at least some sense of what the parameters are with regard to what his priorities would be, how he might engage, things of that nature. But as Susan said, um, the fact that we are, you know, three weeks post-election, and there appears to be a battle royale for who the Secretary of State is going to be, uh, Alex, you may know differently, but I heard as of uh, late yesterday afternoon that there hasn't even been a transition team that has showed up at USAID yet. Um, so it's not clear uh, that they're even sort of, what they're even sort of thinking in that regard. The State Department transition team just showed up late last week. Uh, this is really quite concerning. Now the it, it, this is how, how I sort of put an overlay on it. If you take a look at the, the press reports, it would appear that there are three candidates for a secretary of state that are being seriously considered. One is former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Uh, the second is former governor and presidential candidate Mitt Romney. And the third is uh, uh, General David Treas, former director of Central Command, former director of the CIA. And from where I sit, uh, the most useful productive, responsible choice amongst those three uh, would be General Petraeus. And here's why. Uh, he at least has a considered view of what the priorities of U.S. foreign policy ought to be. He clearly is um, someone who's focused on the counterterrorism threat uh, and mission uh, of the United States. He has extraordinary expertise uh, in Central and uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, is less concerned about, say, Latin America or Africa, as, Su as Susan mentioned, but one could at least identify a focus. The other reason why I think it's crucially important is that given that it does not appear that President Trump has a considered worldview, I suspect what is most likely to happen is that with the exception of a couple of big areas, counterterrorism being one, trade policy being another, whoever has the uh, uh, whoever has foggy bottom will be given a pretty wide range, is my guess on how to develop American foreign policy and present sets of options to the president-elect. The other important center of gravity is Congress. It's, you, you cannot underestimate what the nature of the election of President Trump has done to American politics and also done to the foreign policy um, uh, apparatus, as it were, in Washington. He did this by himself. He did not depend on the Republican Party to help himself get elected. 
He doesn't owe anybody anything. And as a result of that, there is not a consensus, even within his own party, such as it is, of what the priorities are with regard to American foreign policy. For example, uh, the president-elect has shown a series of signs of warming to uh, uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia. There are serious Russia hawks in Congress. It does not appear that he will have a free hand in that. Uh, He has said that he, on day one, he will um, uh, uh, end uh, U.S. engagement in uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and also begin to renegotiate things like NAFTA. And while there is serious concern within the Republican electorate about the nature of trade deals, the Republican Party is, by and large, uh, constitutionally a free trade party. So it's not clear that he's going to have a free free hand in that, that regard. We have no idea what his take is going to be with regard to foreign assistance. We have no idea what his take is going to be with regard to uh, democracy and governance. And the reason all of this matters is I suspect, frankly, that we will see him make this up as he goes along. And it is crucially important, therefore, a couple of things. One, that he pick sound leaders at state and defense. And in this, in this regard, I completely agree with Malcolm. As someone who, who believes uh, fundamentally in the importance of uh, civilian control in the military, I think of the choices that, that are available, the best choices he could have at the moment are David Petraeus at state and uh, General uh, Jim Mattis at the Defense Department of Secretary of Defense. Not because they're generals, but because they have deep experience in what uh, appears to be the only serious uh, item of consensus in U.S. foreign policy from Donald Trump, the Republican Party, and the Democratic Party right now, which is going after uh, 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 terrorist threats to the United States. Uh, And the second is that they are people that it would appear that Donald Trump respects and will listen to. Uh, and those are crucially important given, as I say, his, uh, his uh, lack of uh, uh, view. The other thing that I think for this audience I think is crucially important, I would argue that uh, certainly not in my lifetime uh, has the United States been as much need of its friends as it is going to be in the next four years. Um, where we frankly are going to need our friends in the UK, our friends in Europe, our friends in uh, in Japan, to continue to remind us about what our commitments have been in American foreign policy consensus over the last 50 years, so that we can continue to uh, to be supportive of the uh, world order such as it is that we have helped to construct with our allies over the last 50 years, and we will need your help uh, to continue to hold true to those commitments. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruben, very much. Um, another very comprehensive uh, roundup there, though not necessarily filled with very much more optimism than, than we've heard so far. Um, I, I just wondered if we could just go back to Africa for a moment. And um, I just, um, you spoke about the reaction of leaders, but I wondered about the people on the ground. Do they know Trump has done it? And if they do, do they care? Or do they worry? Uh, I think that actually uh, a lot of people on the ground who are activists, who are champions locally um, for their own societies, they do care and they're really worried. And they're worried about, again, it's what Maha said, about the rhetoric. We, we don't know what he's going to do in action. Um, as Alex said earlier, we've already seen President-elect Trump walk back some of the statements that he talked about during the campaign. Um, so we could have a different outcome, but 
the people on the ground who are kind of leading those movements towards greater democracy, greater openness, they worry about how he treated the media. They worry about what that means for movements to open up their own countries to greater freedoms. And uh, if Trump can do that at home, what he, it, they don't see that he would support their efforts overseas. Um, we are seeing a lot of these NGO laws being passed in a number of African countries that are extremely restrictive. Um, we've seen it in <coughs> Ethiopia, uh, Egypt, we've seen it in Rwanda, we've seen it in Kenya, Uganda, Sudan, South Sudan. I mean, it's just walking through the whole continent. And uh, it's a way of, in some leaders' minds, of getting out of uh, get, getting the foreign involvement out, foreign money, so that they can have one sort of um, easily identified um, kind of state okayed opposition because it's controlled by the state. So um, I, think, I think there are some Africans who feel as if they put so much hope on Obama as one person who's not running their own countries um, that they don't want to make that same mistake, but they are quite worried from at least my contacts uh, and from what I've been seeing on Twitter and, and elsewhere. So I think a lot of people are worried who are not the ones in power. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wondered, Maha, could we just, um, you were very, very interesting on, on the Iran dilemma and the, the two ways in which it could play. But I wondered, could we just look at Israel-Palestine for a moment? Um, <laughs> Uh, and most specifically, I remember uh, seeing, even from the United States, uh, when I was covering the Trump campaign, uh, I could see coming up on CNN and elsewhere the news headlines coming out of Israel and depicting uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, rejoicing, um, at, uh, specifically at the end of the two-state solution. Um, do you read it like that? Do you read Trump as being um, a one-state solution person? And in which case, what impact is that going to be uh, on, on the situation on the ground? Um, the way I see it is he's at this point a no-Palestinian state solution. Uh, I don't think he's even thinking of it as a one-state solution whatever that, for whatever it's worth. Um, I think that um, the impact on the ground, I mean, for Palestinians, there's uh, a lot of concern. I mean, they, they are internally facing a considerable amount of disarray, but there's also a lot of concern um, with Secretary Clinton, even though people were not uh, very happy with her policies, at least they knew where things stood. With uh, President-elect Trump, uh, there's a lot of worry. Uh, the sense that, uh, as I said, the promise to move the uh, embassy to Jerusalem uh, really, uh, you know, it, it, people reacted quite uh, anxiously towards this. Now, at the same time, I think within Israel, there's also a lot of concern with the people whom Trump is, uh, is, uh, is appointing. The sense that, I mean, someone like Steve Bannon and others who are, I mean, the, the, the increase in anti-Semitic discourse among some of the people around Trump is also a big cause for concern. So I think it's, it's very hard to tell which way the wind would blow, but I think my sense is if things continue this way. I don't think we will see any move on the Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue. Most likely, we're going to see things deteriorate even further. 
Um, how long and how sustainable is this? I honestly don't know. It's a matter. Will we see a third intifada? Will we see an increase in violence? Um, we've already been seeing signs of this over the past few years because people are living in a pressure cooker. Um, and uh, the sense that there's no way out is going to further inflame, not only in no way out, but no prospects of any potential uh, easing up of the situation in the near future. There are generations growing up without any hope. Uh, and that's quite lethal. I also want to just come back to a point um, that Ruben just made, which is his argument for why General Petraeus would make a good Secretary of State. And, and the commentary is not about General Petraeus, but rather about the idea that um, a military uh, approach, or at least someone who has a good sense of the security risks, would be a good Secretary of State I worry a lot about this because then this means uh, that we really are adopting a militarized approach to uh, security risks, um, but also to extremism. Um, I think what is really needed is someone who has a much more nuanced understanding of why people are going towards extremist uh, uh, actors. And this is not about ideology. It's not about religion. We need somebody who really understands that a military approach will not do it. There's a currently a military approach going on in Iraq, um, and it has American support. Um, there are many other nations supporting it. The Iraqis are the ones, the boots on the ground. There's a lot of concern that once ISIS is pushed out, what is what will be the post-ISIS scenario? Um, if the grievances of people are not taken into account in a post-ISIS scenario, we're just going to see ISIS pop up under a different name, and perhaps an even more violent version of ISIS. I think so. so I think it's very important, particularly because President-elect Trump does not have that kind of nuanced uh, worldview. Uh, it is important for whoever has his ear as the Secretary of State have that kind of more nuanced reading of what is triggering uh, violent extremism, not just in the region, but, but across the world. Uh, sometimes it's taking on military actions, sometimes it's taking on you know, other forms, including harassment. Do you want to respond to that militarization of the... Uh, uh, sorry, um, Matthew, uh, do, do, you want to, um, do you want to respond to the, uh, the, the idea, um, Malcolm, that uh, a militarization of the Secretary of State would be a a retrograde step? I, I have quite a lot of sympathy for that view. All I would say is I think uh, in this situation we have to look at what the alternatives are. And I think uh, David Petraeus clearly has a military background, but he is a man who's well versed in the complexity of taking military action in that region, in Afghanistan, indeed in Iraq and Syria, and understands, I think, very well that military power is only one of the instruments which UK, the US can bring to bear. And I think he understands a lot about the, the international diplomacy. So if it's a choice between him and a civilian with virtually no experience of foreign policy who comes with a much more simplistic view, then I would prefer Petraeus, uh, given the, the three candidates uh, be, before us. Uh, but I think one of the, I mean, I, I, mean, I think ISIS uh, the, the, the caliphate they've constructed in Syria 
and in Mosul is on the way out. It will be destroyed at some stage during the next year. It will remain as a terrorist organization, but much weakened. The question, uh, as uh, Salim said, is what follows there and whether the United States really will be committed to helping in the, the, the Middle East that follows. And I think one of the one of the strong characteristics of the Obama period, which I suspect will continue into the Trump period, is that American policy objectives in the Middle East are narrowing. Uh, they're focusing on ISO absolutely, uh, but they're much less of a superpower in the Middle East than they were. And actually, uh, reconciliation or conflict between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey is just as important in shaping the future of Syria and Iraq as, as whatever the American administration does. Um, wh what about Russia? Um, it's been mentioned in several um, contributions, but clearly, uh, if if his passion for Putin uh, really exists, and he's never met the man, uh, although he's clearly had some dealings with some parts of his entourage, um, how 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 big a, an issue do you see that, and and do you tie it in with uh, NATO too, and and its future? I, I think, uh, as, as Ruben already raised, I think it's one of the most fascinating conundrums that's likely to confront a Trump presidency, because it is orthodoxy in the Republican Party for decades, obviously going back to the Cold War, but even after that Russia remains a great threat to the United States, and um, I, I don't think that we even have to go back too far to see the really unprecedented nature um, of what happened in this election. Um, and the fact that we know, uh, or we believe that we know, and, and all of the US intelligence agencies concur, um, that Russia and state-sponsored elements in Russia deliberately interfered with the United States election. Um, and I think we're going to be hearing about that for years to come. And so um, I think that the idea uh, and this is something that Susan mentioned, the idea of the embrace of Russia comes, I think, from a more deeply concerning place, which is that, uh, unfortunately, in the last few years, the world has seen a rise in authoritarianism after a great mm. long streak of a rise in democracy. Um, and the combination of sort of state-controlled oligarchy and cronyism um, in places that uh, the Trump organization has business ties. Um, uh, the fact that it takes a lot of standing up to deal with the challenges of closing space of places that are passing laws to prevent civil society um, from being active um, is, is, a, is a terrible trend and one that the United States has forcefully stood up against in the last couple of years, but still, in my opinion, has not done enough. Um, so if we are going to see a rolling back of U.S. support, you know, I'll give you a really practical example, and I'm sure Susan has lived this more times than she would want to recall. The United States ambassador goes in to see the president or the foreign secretary, and they have a list of things that they need to talk about. And some of those things are about security, some of them are about uh, other relations between the country, treaties, things at the UN, and some of those things are about human rights. 
And that ambassador has to prioritize if and when they raise those things, which things mm -hmm. fall off the agenda, uh, which things are said even at the cost of good relationships. And that is a decision that from the president through the secretary of state and the ambassador is one that's made on an almost daily basis because that's the balancing of foreign relations happens in those conversations. And I think that we all fear that if the, if the United States and the ambassadors start having to pull their punches, if the annual human rights report from the State Department pulls its punches, um, if the speeches at the United Nations pull their punches, then we are going to see a long-term trend um, of authoritarianism and of the trampling of, of civil and human rights um, that, that would be devastating for, for years to come. Um, but let me give one shining note that, that could help us is that, you know, the Republican Party um, has always also been the party of the freedom agenda, the party of wanting to make the world safe for democracy. Now, that has often brought some challenging things, but many of the stalwarts in American foreign policy for decades on making sure that the United States does not back off on its commitments to democratic freedoms around the world have been in the Republican Party. And I think what we are all hoping for, and this is the debate about the Secretary of State, what the Congress is going to do, is that there will be voices that emerge in a somewhat blank slate era of, of potential Trump foreign policy that will shift things in the right direction. Um, and I think that the way to do that is obviously to hope for the right selections, um, but it's also a moment of advocacy. If we know anything about Trump is that he watches the news, he wants to succeed, he wants to be seen as succeeding. Um, and the voices, I think, that come to him in this time um, from friends, from the media, do have the potential to sway some of the, the policies going forward. So it is a time for activism, and in particular, I think, a time for activism among conservatives who want to see the best coming out of the United States. Uh, Ruben, can I just ask you, given that you uh, talked about the relationship with the Republican Party, uh, do you see it like that? Do you think the Republican Party uh, and its love for freedom and the rest of it will have enough influence with Trump in any way to affect uh, the way he operates as president? I think it could, but he, here's my worry. Um, <clears throat> this is certainly one of the most remarkable presidential elections in terms of foreign policy in the sense that uh, the, the, the foreign policy priorities of the Republican Party are will be deeply tied to how they understand their domestic political base. Because what this election has done is it has excited a very large portion of the Republican electorate that were, that were so dissatisfied for a variety of reasons with what the so-called elite had been doing for them. They prepared to basically send a signal to Washington to just blow everything up, which is why they chose Donald Trump out of a field of 16 other established Republican candidates to be their, to be their um, nominee and why ultimately he was elected. So... The, the concern is, on the one hand, I think Alex is, is absolutely right. There is traditionally a, uh, a, a, a reservoir for support for a freedom agenda abroad. There clearly is a reservoir support for uh, principled approaches to development, which is, I mean, the, the Millennium Challenge Corporation was created under President Bush. The PEPFAR program was created under President Bush. So th there is a great deal of reservoir support for this. The question is, whether or not individual, particularly the House of Representatives, individual uh, members of Congress will be prepared to push these sorts of agenda items in their foreign policy if they think 
it will go against whatever the articulated approach of President Trump will be, and if they think that that will also go to make their seats vulnerable in Congress. I think, frankly, we just have to see, but I do think that Alex has basically articulated uh, an interesting framework going forward for uh, Democrats and Republicans to work together on those th- on those matters of the uh, uh, foreign policy consensus of the United States that have endured for many years. Well, now, look, before we take uh, any more uh, any questions from the floor, I just want a couple of things that have come in online. Claire Williams from SOAS would like to ask the panel, how much should I fear for the future of the Baltic states, given that Trump's uh, ambivalence towards given Trump's ambivalence towards NATO? Well, there you have a new battery of missiles moved up there ten days ago. Um, should everyone be concerned, or is it just Putin playing games, uh, Malcolm? I think we should always be concerned and I think what's happening in and around the Baltic states is there is a military build-up now on both sides. NATO's military build-up so far is relatively modest but it is gaining momentum and uh, it's a real danger that we are uh, with the Russians getting into a process of slow motion escalation of which it will be very difficult to escape from. Uh, My instinct, my very strong instinct, is I cannot believe in the end uh, Trump is going to call into question NATO security guarantees. It would be so unpopular right across the foreign policy elite in Washington. What he is doing is he wants uh, Europeans to pay more for defence, but that's not unfamiliar. That was a central part of Obama's approach to Europeans over the last eight years, and it's beginning to bear fruit uh, since the Russian uh, problem it got a lot worse over the last couple of years. Where I think it, it will be very interesting is is how far Putin, uh, how far uh, Trump reaches out to Putin and says, "Can't we make a deal?" I mean, his instinct is there should be a deal to be made here. His instinct is, I think, that small states matter less because they're not very powerful, and his instinct will be to make a deal over the heads of Eastern Europe and over the heads of the Ukrainians in particular. But what I, I mean, and I think it's actually worthwhile having another discussion with the Russians. It's always worth seeing whether there's opportunities for reset. The question is what the Russians are prepared to give as part of that arrangement. Uh, because, as has been mentioned, it's not only about Russian interference in the election. The Russians pose an enormous uh, cyber threat uh, to European countries as well as uh, the United States. And the idea you can have a reset without that being addressed, I think, is fanciful. The idea that the United States can decide the fate of Ukraine by itself is fanciful because the Ukrainians have a vote, and so on and so forth. And uh, it may be, it just may be, with a Russia whose economy is no larger than that of Australia, whose defense budget is only a tenth of that of the United States, of, of NATO, and it is continuing to decline economically, it may be that there are elements of the Russian elite to say this is the time to cash in our chips and get the best deal we can. If so, Trump may provide an opportunity to do that, but I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic in that regard. There's a good question from Andrew Camp from the German Institute for Human Rights, and she'd like to ask, what about Trump's business interests? Uh, how far might they influence foreign policy? And what, well, what is there actually, Susan, to constrain a president in... Well, we've never had a businessman as a president, so I mean... What, what, you know the inside of American government. How much control is there to prevent a president slipping a contract through while he's doing a deal on Crimea? Well, actually, this is, this is quite concerning. Um, one of the things that past presidents have always done is, even if they weren't billionaires, 
whatever their money was and whatever corporations that they were involved in, they put their money in a blind trust run by outsiders with no direct interaction with the family. So some lost money, but the idea is we don't have control over it. Um, Trump has recently come out and said, first on the, com on the, on the uh, campaign trail, he said, oh, I don't know if you call it a blind trust, but it'll be a blind trust run by my children and my wife, which of course anybody knows is not a blind trust. Um, since then, since the election, he has said, um, well, in fact, there is nothing obliging him to put his money in a blind trust. There are constraints on other leaders of the U.S. Um, and ethics rules and whatnot, but none specifically saying the president must do certain things. And so he's now come out with statements saying, um, actually, a president cannot be uh, deemed to have a conflict of interest, which, of course, is not, not right. Um, so as you said, I mean, John, we've never seen this before. And it is possible that foreign businessmen coming into town will stay at Trump Towers. Mm -hmm. And because they will feel culturally that's what they would do elsewhere, so they should stay at Trump Towers. And so his businesses could be getting a huge bulk of money just by him being in office as the president. And if that stuff is not either hived off and you know had a so-called Chinese wall built between it, I, he absolutely could profit off of, uh, off of everything in the office of the president. And it's very difficult to stop that. But that is why we have Congress. And um, that is one of the things that they can do. All right. Um, so from the floor, who would like to ask a, a question? Yes, ma'am. If people could say their name and uh, interest. Uh, thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, ODI. I want to ask about two areas which haven't been mentioned at all. First, Latin America, which I suspect for Trump is the developing world, and therefore, <laughs> uh, and therefore possibly the area where he is most likely to get directly involved in one way or another, when there's a lot of scope for involvement, particularly this week. And the other area is international institutions in general, where he's made his views on US independence fairly clear. What are the implications, not just for NATO, but for the WTO, after the Boeing decision yesterday, for uh, the UN, and indeed for a couple of institutions based in Washington? Ruben, is that a blank sheet of paper? <coughs> It's a blank sheet of paper, but maybe with some uh, outlines drawn on, like in a coloring book. Um, let me let me suggest a couple of things. I mean, so, 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 so. First of all, Republicans, as a general proposition, have been uh, are, are are less sanguine about notions of international governance compared to Democrats. So that's already kind of the interesting sort of starting point. Uh, he has not made positive um, notes about NATO, as Malcolm said. That's been mainly with regard to. Uh, uh, Equal payment. I'll come back to that point in in, in a moment. Um, he does not. He's other than building a wall with Mexico. He has not said anything with regard to Latin America. It is and also NAFTA, I should say, and uh, and wanting to rebuild NAFTA. But again, he's wa already walked back so many things. We we simply don't know what he's what he's going to do in that regard specifically. But let me say. 
two things in particular regard. I will say, um, I'm happy to say this on the record, I am um, very concerned about his appointment to the UN uh, for uh, his nominee for uh, Governor Nikki Haley of South Carolina, who appears to be, by all accounts, from what I can tell, be a very decent human being, uh, who was, I think, critical of the uh, of, of the, the president-elect in terms of his harsh rhetoric during the campaign, but has accepted this position. Uh, as Ambassador Page would tell you, there are political ambassadorships and then there are political ambassadorships. <laughs> that job is not for novices. And uh, I am, uh, frankly, I hope she has a very strong team around her, um, but it's not clear to me how effective she will be with regard to uh, the political dynamics around there, particularly around the P5, particularly with regard to Russia and China. Let me, if I, well, I have the floor, say one thing to come back to with what Malcolm said and the uh, question from online. Uh, I am actually gravely concerned about Russia and the Baltics. Um, and let me tell you why. Um, from the Kremlin's perspective, in the last five years, uh, President Putin has been able to have his way in Crimea, in the Ukraine, and in Syria without any serious pushback from the United States. He has also um, uh, been able to interfere in a U.S. presidential election. I think you could argue that NATO, politically speaking, has not been as weak uh, since the end of uh, Cold War as it is right now with regard to turmoil in Turkey, with regard to questions of what the challenges to European Union means for the nature of the commitment to a uh, to the uh, transatlantic uh, security alliance in obviously the opposite section of NATO, and also with regard to uh, the president-elect's own, frankly, at, at best, ambiguous comments with regard to uh, uh, U.S. commitments to NATO. So, if I were a Latvian or an Estonian um, or Lithuanian, I would be gravely concerned. Uh, and I think that, again, this is an area where uh, the United States will need its friends to help remind uh, America what the nature of our commitments are and why they are so important in the years going forward. Could, could I offer something um, uh, controversial, Rubin? And, and that is that any of us who have worked long enough to have been around when the Cold War ended, in retrospect, you now look back, and it's easy to blame Trump, uh, for, for the future, as it were, but you can look back and you sort of say, what did we in the West do to say to Russia, um, uh, how is your southern flank to be protected? What, is your, what are the new security issues now that you've lost the whole of the bottom of your, of, of your security? What, how are we going to help you resolve your security issues? And we should then have looked at the Ukraine. We should then have looked at Crimea and the rest of it. And Trump, let's feel some sympathy for him, is going to be dumped with this utterly unresolved issue of Russia's security, which is all about Syria too. Why do they need a warm water port? Because they too have a massive uh, um, a Muslim, uh, a radical Muslim threat in their own states, which is fueled by people coming in from the east. So, I mean, you know, it isn't going to be all Trump. Most of it is a trap. Uh, 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 not not a deliberate trap, but a trap laid by us. What do you think, Susan? Well, <laughs> I, I, I thank you. Thank a, you very much. I thought I'd throw a curveball in. Well, I'm going to answer a slightly different question. Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so a curveball back. Um, I actually wanted to comment a little bit on what uh, what Ruben just said about uh, the choice of Nikki Haley at the UN. Um, one thing that has been uh, said frequently in the media is that this is a cabinet-level position. But it has not always been a cabinet-level position, and we don't know whether or not Trump would make it a cabinet-level position, which 
could alter how she operates within the UN and within uh, the rest of the cabinet. I actually think that that could make a big difference because um, oftentimes, you know, you want your strong cabinet members around you to advise and guide you. But I wonder often if it is not a mistake to have the UN ambassador part of the cabinet and whether that weakens that person's ability to be neutral and separated from the cabinet where you've got the president also controlling the UN relations. Um, well, what about Ruben's point that she has no experience of diplomacy? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think what we've seen from most of the cabinet positions so far that have been pointed out, I mean, they don't have particular experience. I mean, his choice for uh, education secretary is a, a businesswoman who has advocated for um, voucher systems for uh, the public tax-paying American to pay for people to go to private schools. That's going to gut our public education, which is already failing. That's not going to help it. So I think we do have to look at a number of the choices that have been picked um, and look at their backgrounds and credentials. Why she accepted when she was somewhat critical of Trump, I don't know. He does need good people around him as well. And um, I would say, although not on an international scale, I think she did handle the crisis in South Carolina quite well about uh, the, the Confederate flag. Um, and she was really strong on that, that we have to get rid of these symbols of racism. This is not... This is, you know, 2000 and at the time 15. This is no longer the place for that. And she was strong when uh, Dylan Roof uh, allegedly uh, shot uh, the um, uh, American worshipers in a black uh, black church in South Carolina. So she's she's done some things, but yeah, it's not international experience on a wide scale. So it is worrying, but all of them to me are are pretty pretty worrying as well. I'm keen to involve Maha again because she, she raised really interesting issues about <laughs> Iran uh, and, and that whole segment of uh, uh, Trump's, well, the first day is going to have Iran somewhere on the list. Um, anybody have a question that relates to the Middle East or to Maha? Yes. Uh, yeah. um, hello, my name is uh, Colin um, my name is Colin Walker. I'm uh, Head of Policy and Advocacy at uh, Warchilds. It's quite a simple question and uh, one that's going to be prone to quite a lot of conjecture because I should point out there's a lot we don't know. But quite simply, what do you think the election of Trump, taking into account his relationship with Putin, means for the likely outcome for the conflict in Syria and the longevity of that conflict? Could you hear that, uh, Maha? Uh, I heard the first part, which is... What <coughs> we, uh, basically, it, it's, it's simply what, what are the, what's the implications for the security of the future resolution of Syria and security in that region. Um, do you want to pick up on that? Uh, quite honestly, at this point, I think it's pretty dismal. I mean, um, it's, uh, it, already now things are changing quite quickly on the ground. By the time Trump uh, takes up the uh, position, his hands, or in his hands, even if he wanted to intervene, would already be tied. We're seeing what's happening in Aleppo. Um, uh, part of the uh, eastern part of Aleppo has already fallen to the, uh, uh, the Syrian regime. 
Uh, my concern is with this push uh, and the support to Russia and uh, the, the, the you know, Bashar al-Assad under the rhetoric that Bashar al-Assad is a partner against ISIS, we're just going to see a prolongation of the conflict for a long time. Uh, Bashar al-Assad is barrel bombing his own population. So, and, you know, any pushback against this, I mean, the scenario I see, frankly, is that, yes, they will get Aleppo, the opposition might be pushed uh, into the area of Idlib. Um, ISIS may be rolled back in areas. I don't know that the uh, that uh, Assad and the Syrian government has the manpower to take over and control all of Syria today. I mean, to control a, a country the size of Syria, you need to have some form of legitimacy People have to cooperate with you. You have to have the infrastructure, the funding. Uh, I mean, a lot of things need to be in place. And given the level of destruction on so many different levels, both physical, but also in terms of um, the, you know, the acquiescence of people to the authority of the Syrian government, I find it very hard to see how uh, even the support for the continuation of the current regime will be able to take over uh, and control Syria again. So for me, the prospects, frankly, are quite dismal. And I think that we're laying the basis for further conflict and further radicalization down the road. There have been some discussions, and I know some of the Trump advisors have thrown these ideas out of doing a kind of a confederal system or a, fed, a federal system, decentralization. I mean, it comes under different titles, but it would all be on the basis of ethnic or sectarian identity. Quite honestly, going down that road means a considerable uh, ethnic cleansing and population transfers even more than what we have seen already in Syria. And again, we're laying the grounds for further conflict down the road. We haven't even mentioned the role of Turkey and its way it's been pushing back against uh, the possibility of an emergence, the emergence of a Kurdish kind of ent entity in Syria in the same way that there is in Iraq. Thank you very much, Maha. Uh, questions from the floor? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Leila Vali. Um, I just had a question in terms of a longer term view and what um, there's been increasing dialogue around the Trump presidency, around Brexit, around Le Pen, um, mean it being a rejection of globalization. So, my question is in terms of a longer term view, looking at five, 10 plus years, do you think we're going to see a shift in geopolitics and with the, U with the US, with Europe, kind of looking more inwards and less outwards? And what scope will that leave for kind of other world players to, I guess, have increased power or to do something different? Fine, thank you. Can I take a couple of other questions as well? Um, because I want to try and democratize the activity. Yes, sir. Adrian Hewitt, also from ODI. Uh, we're not getting answers on Sheila's two questions about trade policy and about the Washington institutions, the international financial institutions, in uh, uh, multilateral institutions in Washington. So these are areas where ODI does a lot of work. Let me try and give you some answers and see if you can respond to that. <laughs> trade policy. Obviously, Trump has treated lots of outrageous things before he, was, before he won. He then proceeded to appoint Wilbur Ross 
to be Secretary of State for Trade. Uh, he hasn't yet appointed a USTR yet, but uh, that'll come soon. Wilbur Ross, I mean, people say Trump possibly isn't really a Republican, but Wilbur Ross really was a Democrat until 2012, uh, and yet he'll still get through Congress. So, you know, things are rather more positive than we thought initially on trade policy. And it's very important for, for the rest of us, and it's rather important for ODI, actually. Um, secondly, on the Washington institutions. One of them, the World Bank, is fixed in advance. Trump can't do anything about the president of the World Bank because a year before he was due to be reappointed, he was reappointed with the consent of all the members. Unanimity. The International Monetary Fund is a completely different matter. It wouldn't surprise me at all if in May, um, Christine Lagarde got a call from President Fillon and got on the first plane to be, to be Prime Minister of France and there would be a vacancy in the IMF. Do you think, and this is my question finally, apologies, do you think um, President Trump will allow the IMF to be continued to be run by Europeans when the Eurozone in the G7 will no longer have an EU majority with Britain exiting and joining the other side and so on. So there's, there's lots of movement there. Okay, um, well, that, 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 let me take one more question. Um, Can I do it? Oh. Uh, uh, ladies first. And then I'll, I'll come to you first afterwards. Right? Sorry, I've just yeah. been holding this microphone. Uh, my name is Karen Whitus. Um, and I, I, my question sort of leads on to the first one, which is to do with the role of American leadership in the world. Um, in all of these areas, you know, where you see, uh, or we, we're worried about withdrawing. So, for example, in world trade, right? I mean, if the U.S. withdraws from a leadership position in world trade, what nation steps up? Is it China, whose economy absolutely depends on world trade? Um, if we're talking about rule of law and democracy, uh, which is my field, where I come out of, that was always you know, the flagship of soft power for the United States. If we withdraw from that, is there anyone who's going to step up and, and push that agenda to take care of some of these people that, that the ambassador referred to who are activists in their own countries? Um, if you look at some other great world issues where the U.S. has all climate change, right? if we really withdraw from climate change, um, is there another country that will step up and push this leadership? And is this really the eclipse of American influence in these really global important issues? Okay, well, let's try and address those, and then I'll come to your question afterwards. Um, who would like to kick off? Yes, Alex. Well, um, let me start, I think, on the, on the first question, um, because I think that this, this issue of the countervailing forces between long-term looking inward and globalization, uh, first of all, are, are not going to be reconciled, um, because they will, they will continue to exist simultaneously. I think it's really important to acknowledge uh, in this conversation, uh, which I think is true both uh, for Brexit and for Trump's election, um, that the effects of globalization have not been kind to everyone. And I think that the financial crisis and the rise in realization, and certainly in the United States, um, of fundamental and worsening inequalities in some cases are issues that need to be addressed domestically. Um, if we do not do something about that, it will continue to polarize our country and leave people out 
um, and deepen poverty instead of improving it even in the United States, let alone in the rest of the world. And these are deeply fundamental issues that do need to be addressed. Um, and I think that that was in part what was going on, at least with our electorate. At the same time, however, it would be ludicrous to think that the solutions to that problem are inward solutions. When you look at globalization, like it or not, we are affected by climate change. We are affected by the vicissitudes of trade and commodity prices. Uh, we are affected by what happens uh, when in Russia and in the Middle East. Um, and we are affected by outbreaks of disease like Ebola and others um, that will likely have worse impacts uh, domestically as well as internationally. And so to see the trend of needing to deal with some of the issues at home, like failing infrastructure, which is a real issue in the United States, and inequality does not mean that you can only deal with those challenges internally. Which brings me, I think, to one good thing and one bad thing that I would say, uh, just to carry forward the climate issue a little bit. Um, the United States is critical to making the goal of two degrees or 1.5 degrees in the Paris Accords real. And the good news story is that the United States has done tremendous things in the last eight years to bring down our carbon emissions. That can be undone. And uh, I think that it is critical that when we see the effects of increased storm intensity, of drought and flood, and all of the impacts that we're seeing from climate change, uh, rising sea levels, those are things that affect us at home and as well as abroad. And I am concerned, but also hopeful that those domestic impacts will wake up the president-elect and others who he appoints uh, to needing to deal with the problem. The one potential positive point, uh, and this relates in some ways uh, to the World Bank, although not the question of what happens at the IMF, um, is that something remarkable has happened in international development in the last couple of years, and that is that there is more money on the table than has ever been the case before. There is more public money, more private money, and the idea that we use more public money to leverage more private money to engage in helping to fill the infrastructure gap around the developing world that we know is going to either enable or disable development over the next several decades um, requires people who understand how to get big deals done, require understand people who understand debt and finance and leverage, and maybe, just maybe, uh, Trump the builder uh, will see an opportunity um, to do something interesting um, using the resources of the international finance institutions and the United States to actually see that infrastructure finance abroad is something that helps the United States and not hurt it, and therefore an America First policy can also be one that promotes development. Malcolm. I mean, those two were great questions in terms of, of where we go now. I think the first point to make is that both Brexit and the Trump victory were very narrow and deeply contested. And therefore, I think we shouldn't automatically assume this is the future for the West. It is a, it's the most fundamental crisis the West as a concept has met, I think, since since the end of World War II, actually, the institutions created, the, the norms created after World War II are under fundamental uh, threat throughout Western societies. And Alex is absolutely right to point to some of the underlying factors there. This period of very rapid global growth is one in which majority of people in Western countries haven't had any increases in real income. You look at these figures recently in terms of the UK, stagnant 
wages year after year after year for the majority of the population. It's hardly surprising people are looking for what are called populist solutions. But they are populist <laughs> in the sense they're telling people what they want to hear rather than coming up with a coherent solution. And I think we now have a, I suspect the next years we're going to be in a, a period of really quite robust political struggle. <laughs> the Brexiteers here have got a bit of a, a, a window of opportunity because they haven't defined what sort of Brexit they want yet. But once the government does that and May doesn't want to define it because she knows that whatever she says, she's going to make a lot of enemies somewhere, but she'll have to pretty soon. And so will Trump. Trump will have to uh, come good on these. And that, that, I think, will create profound political struggle around that nationalist, internationalist um, uh, axis that I talked about earlier. But the internationalists need to define <laughs> what they want. It can't simply be back to business as usual. They have to tackle the issues of economic marginalization, which affect a large part of their own populations. They do need to look inside a bit more and a bit less outside. I suspect it will involve a bit more protectionism, <laughs> a bit less ideological support for free trade, no matter what impact it has on struggling communities in their own world. And the final point I would make is, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how China reacts to all this. Because China, I think, clearly economically becoming more and more powerful, becoming more and more of a foreign policy, and to some extent, an international security actor. But China's policy is evolving. I think the way in which Chinese soft power is emerging is rather more important. That they're trying to sell themselves as the leaders on climate change rather than the United States uh, is really interesting and uh, not entirely without some hope, but China also has its domestic politics, which is going to play into that. So, Ruben, we have to come to you for the Washington institutions. Um, you know, uh, the, the point was raised as to how many of these uh, institutions were going to change under Trump, whether the EU would still be able to chair the IMF, etc. Um, and uh, the question that comes into my head, too, is given the extraordinary range of issues we've discussed, is Ruben, going, is, is, Ruben is, is President Trump going to be vulnerable to the possibility that ideologues that he appoints will actually run the policy and he'll just tick the box? Yes, absolutely. I, I think he is vulnerable with that. And I think part of the reason he is vulnerable with that is because he has not articulated, as I mentioned, um, a sense not only of a broad uh, international worldview, but uh, particularly as it relates to uh, U.S. Uh, place in the global economy or what the role of the IFES is in that in that space, other than to make America great again, which is, as Malcolm said, essentially uh, the best way in which one can articulate it is some sense of, uh, sort of neo-protectionism. Although what I would say is two things. I mean, one is uh, uh, you are correct. Uh, the question is correct that the presidency of the World Bank has already been chosen. However, uh, he will be able to make a choice of the U.S. executive director to the World Bank, uh, which will be a he could pick somebody who is you know essentially um, either low profile or broadly consensus building, or he could pick somebody who's very adversarial. Frankly, um, my money is more on the latter, uh, but we don't we just don't know. We'll see. Um, and with regard to U.S., uh, either continued European leadership of the IMF or whether or not he makes a play for American leadership, um, I think it frankly depends on, on – um, on, it's going to depend on a couple of things. I mean, one is what the timing of this will be in the context of, um, of the Trump administration, right? So if this happens within the next, say, year, year and a half, uh, what is the nature of his sort of uh, – 
cut of the rug in the international uh, sort of scene going to be? Is he going to make a major play? Is, is that worth the fight, frankly, re- relative to other fights he may have to play with regard to the Europeans or the French or other, or other people? We simply don't know. Um, final thing I would say uh, with regard to all this is, uh, back to Malcolm's point, you know, the the it's not clear to me that uh, neo-protectionism will lead to an increase in, uh, in, in, in the domestic economic fortunes of either the U.S. populace or, or those of the Europeans. Because one thing we know is that free trade helps to create wealth. The problem is it doesn't help to distribute wealth more broadly, right? So, uh, and, and that, I think, is frankly a, a fundamental matter of U.S. fiscal and monetary policy. I think it's probably sort of true elsewhere. Uh, and, and this, frankly, is one of the great sort of conundrums of, uh, of, of Republican policy. So there are things that could be done to help jumpstart economic development outside of the metropoli of, of the United States. One thing that President Trump has said, I think, could be of great use is developing uh, greater uh, infrastructure projects to help make the U.S. sort of more competitive. Ironically, I think only a Republican can actually do that. And if a, if a President Obama did try to do it and was sort of castigated as a big spending liberal, but if a Republican wants to do it, then it's you know another rubric of making America great again. But whatever. I mean, I think as long as long as we sort of move forward, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but I but I, I do worry that in the in, in this sort of neo protectionist environment, that we'll be making the wrong choices. Uh, and what we ought to be focusing is, uh, is not only on continuing to strengthen the international trading regime, but also trying to figure out a way through domestic uh, fiscal and monetary policy to make those gains uh, be a bit more broadly spread at home. Ruben, thank you very much. Um, Susan, you wanted to raise something on globalization. Yeah, I just wanted to answer a little bit on some of the globalization, uh, anti-rejection of globalization that, that Malcolm mentioned, as well as, as uh, the questions from the audience. And I think one thing, um, it's not only true in Africa, but it's also true in other parts of the world where the youth were completely against some of these changes. So um, the young people, what, even if they didn't vote uh, in the Brexit uh, vote, they are not in favor of you know, pulling back from world involvement. If you look at the continent of Africa, it is the world's youngest growing, fastest growing population. Um, you know, in most of the continent, three quarters of the population is under the age of 25 and rapidly growing. So they need to be connected. They want to be connected. And they're not going to believe, um, whether it's in the U.S., young people who are entrepreneurs or others trying to do business, that simply pulling back is the way to go about that. Um, it's our parents or grandparents maybe who are finally kind of catching on, learning how to, you know, get on the internet and do things. But I mean, you know, ask an eight-year-old and they're putting everything together. Mama, this is how you do Twitter, Twitter this is how you do whatever. Um, they're connected and they want to stay connected. So I think eventually, even in the United States, people are going to recognize that Trump cannot bring these jobs back to America that have largely been lost, some of course through trade, but not that many through trade. A lot of them were lost because of automation, because of new technologies. That's a reality that they will wake up to one day and realize I'm not good, that, that coal plant is not gonna reopen. It's just not. Um, and so the, the last thing I would say is that 
um, I think, and this is sort of to Ruben's point, is that we're going to have to rely on all of you and, you know, you as, as Brits, those of you in the room who are worried about Brexit, we're going to have to also keep each other on, you know, on target to remind ourselves of what our commitments are and why these things are important. I mean, I personally think that through our institutions, that's where we have the greatest chance of succeeding and where Trump would have a much harder time rolling things back are the things that have been put into law through our Congress. And so I can speak mostly on the Africa side, but um, Alex mentioned some of them. We've got AGOA, the AGOA extension, the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. We have now, he may want to play around with trade, but that's a legislative enactment harder to, to get away with. Uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, it looks at countries across the, the the spectrum of how they are doing as developing their country on governance issues, on economic development, et cetera. Um, I would really hate to see YALI, the Young Leaders, Young African Leaders Initiative, go away. That has been enormously successful and is harnessing the energy of all those young people in Africa that really want to, to move on and develop. Um, somebody mentioned, uh, I think Ruben mentioned PEPFAR, started under uh, President Bush. Um, this has helped enormous amounts of people get, you know, get antiretrovirals for AIDS and HIV. Um, Power Africa Act, it's now legislation. Uh, the Food Security Act, legislation. So these would be harder for him to roll back, even as he perhaps tries to think about cutting you know, USAID and foreign aid. Um, look, we've <clears throat> overrun by about seven minutes, but the fact is the tube overran by 15. <laughs> so we're going to take another five minutes, uh, and, and then we will finish. Um, so we'll take the last round of questions. You have the first one, sir. Thank you. Um, Jack Aldane for uh, Development Finance Magazine. Um, it's good to um, finally hear about China in this, um, because it's an issue that I think perhaps uh, the panel and generally everyone knows maybe least about in terms of what the ramifications are after a Trump presidency. But I wanted to bounce off the back of Malcolm's point and ask, um, really, how worried is the panel about three issues, trade, territorial disputes in the Asia-Pacific, and finally, if I could ask um, a direct question to Susan, if foreign assistance is being increasingly withdrawn from the African continent, um, how much does this open um, China's opportunity to intervene and get involved in Africa's affairs? Great. Thank you very much. Uh, anyone else? Yes. <clears throat> and yes. Yeah. So uh, women first. So we go. You go, darling. Yep. Hi, I'm Michelle Chavunga, founder of the uh, Policy House. I'm just wondering, I mean, there's been a lot of talk, I think, during the elections around women's um, economic empowerment. With the Trump election, is there a threat to that? America has definitely been leading on a lot of the women's initiative, especially around sort of women-led businesses uh, and access to finance. I just wonder, is there a threat to that? And then in terms of Africa as well, we've done quite a lot of work with young people and young girls as well. Is there a threat to some of the work that, you know, that is going on around that as well? Thank you. Great. And, and final question. Um, Alex, following, following on from what you said about how develop, um, conservatives look at development as like a, a way to win friends, um, is there not a danger that 
US development policy can become a soft power tool and US aid um, staff can become force multipliers abroad. Great, three, three excellent questions. Um, who, want, who wants to kick off? China? On, on China, I mean, it's a, such a big question, of course. <laughs> uh, on territorial disputes, I think there's a, there must be a risk that China will misinterpret uh, what the United States, uh, what signals it's sending, and um, in relation to what, after all, territorial disputes about largely uninhabited <laughs> coral atolls, areas sometimes not even above the sea. Uh, hard to imagine this could be the trigger for a major power conflict, but I think it's possible that it could. And what China, I think, has been doing very cleverly is playing salami tactics. It's always been doing uh, just enough to make sure it continues to advance, but not enough to provoke conflict. And it's a tactic uh, which you see in a more robust and aggressive fashion from Russia. But China, I think, has been so far more subtle in, in the way it's doing it, but it's advancing. And at some stage, there must be a risk that it will miscalculate and you'll get into a crisis in which the reputation of leaders is at stake and which even the domestic political survival prospects of leaders are at stake. And as we've seen in the past, that radically narrows the options in a, in a military crisis. Uh, so that, that would be what I worry about. The other aspect of that I think I would worry about in some ways more is that as long as it's simply territorial disputes at sea, <laughs> Uh, then there are ways of managing. There's, there are risks there, but there are ways of managing. But, of course, uh, when it, and we see this with Russia, when it becomes political disputes or superpower rivalry played out within countries, uh, rivalry about uh, who's Philippines' best friend, for example, <laughs> uh, more of the, some of the weaker states in Southeast Asia, or you might see it in relation to Thailand or Burma or other countries in Central Asia, then it becomes uh, less able for major powers to control. And you see that in Ukraine and Syria. Those are, on one level, they're proxy conflicts. <laughs> but on another level, local actors have a say. And again and again, the history of proxy conflicts is that the major powers can't control what their proxies do. And that creates a potential for escalation. And some of the worst uh, wars of the post-World War II period, uh, the Korean War, uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and their miscalculation there uh, were a result of people misunderstanding <laughs> what the other superpowers were prepared to do uh, and that ending up in, in terrible conflict. So I think that's a real issue. China is a more cautious power. The big difference between China and Russia is that in the end, China still believes time is on its side. <laughs> It wants to keep advancing, improving its strategic position, but time is on its side, it thinks. Russia is in the opposite position. China is a, uh, Russia is a weakening power. It's got all, all the problems associated with weakness, and that's why and I think we need to have different approaches to Russia and China that respect the fact that Russia is, in the end, a weakening power, a GDP equivalent to South Korea or Australia. China is already one of the, the, the second largest power in the world in many respects, and perhaps the largest in 20 years. We're slightly up against the, the clock, so can, okay, can we, uh, women's empowerment? Yeah, so um, I think on women's empowerment, um, AGOA has had a tremendous effect on this, the Af Africa Growth and Opportunities Act. It's been extended uh, for another 10 years, uh, a year ago. 
Um, I do worry about what he might intend to do with AGOA and cutting that because a lot of the hubs that have been set up have been specifically for women's development and women-owned businesses and promoting that. Um, sort of a correlation with that is the special uh, representative for women, women's issues in the State Department. Unclear whether or not that would be a position that he would continue. Um, it has, they have done some tremendous things over uh, successive years. Uh, again, I think it would be really uh, a disadvantage if that, if that slowed down. The First Lady and the Second Lady of the U.S. have been very active in girls' education, um, traveling around the continent, in, in Africa in particular, but not only Africa, um, that girls need education, and not just, not just STEM, but also STEM. So again, I, you know, I hate to keep coming back to, we don't know exactly what he's going to do, but we don't. But those, I do think that those are somewhat at risk. And maybe just to answer your question on, um, again, with China and if uh, foreign assistance is cut, does that pave the way for China to get more involved? They're massively involved in Africa. And um, we have pretty much ceded our place because China does what USAID did 50 years ago before it was really gutted by subsequent administrations. I mean, it's true. We don't do roads and buildings and infrastructure anymore. And as long as USAID is cut from doing those things, it means that contractors, because they don't have employee positions, they hire contractors, which ultimately costs us more money. Um, but leaders are starting to also recognize that China is an expensive partner. So they're getting loans because it's sort of the country is borrowing from its own central bank mm. to give out these loans. So it's just this nice little circle. We don't have that luxury. Our system isn't set up that way. Um, but they're also recognizing they're not necessarily getting a huge benefit because, A, they've got to pay them back, which they've usually borrowed quite heavily into the future. And secondly, China imports a large majority of its own workers because they have too many people that are unemployed in, in China. So they're not even getting the benefit of learning how to build the trains or run the trains. Um, and Ruben knows this very well, that you, know, you go into the African Union building and the instructions are in Chinese um, because they built the building. Um, and one area that we have been able to cooperate on, and this really did start under, uh, under Ruben as ambassador to, uh, um, to the African Union, was this U.S.-China cooperation um, in the aftermath of the Ebola outbreak in Africa, was Africa wanting really to ramp up its creation of the Africa CDC, the Center for Disease Control. And that has been one area we've been able to partner together on healthcare. And as Alex said earlier, one of the um, disappointing things that if Trump really does cut a lot of aid um, from USAID, most of the assistance, uh, over a third of our assistance, not just from USAID, but elsewhere, is in the health and education areas. So it would have a profound effect on opening the way for others to get involved. We've only literally got seconds. Yeah. Uh, 30-second answer to the last two questions is that because we're at ODI, development works best when it is based on evidence and when it is targeted towards the things that aid can actually change. Aid cannot end wars, uh, but it can do tremendous things like empower women uh, to come out of poverty. 
Um, and so hopefully what we will see is the best use of our development resources in the United States in their most effective way, which is ultimately what makes and keeps America great. Your future director, pithy, short, <laughs> and to the point. Uh, uh, Ruben, um, a, a quick last word from you. Anything you wanted to say just before we come to a close? Just say thank you very much for being part of the panel. I look forward to continued transatlantic cooperation in the years ahead. Great stuff. Thanks. <laughs> and Maha, uh, I, I'd love to hear even more from you because I'm, I'm really passionate about the Iran situation. But uh, anything more from you? Just one last comment. I think that um, if there is no toning down of the radical Islam, the kind of clash of civilization rhetoric, um, then we're, I mean, this is the rhetoric that really appeals to jihadi groups. We unfortunately will see a much more increase in, uh, in, in, uh, in violence across the world. So I would sort of, perhaps this is an opportunity to try and find a workable solution uh, uh, around this. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll end here. And thank you very much for allowing me to be part of this. Thank you, Maha, very much indeed. And uh, I was supposed to sum up, but I think I can sum up by saying what we have done actually is to very, I think, accurately describe the tapestry of challenges that really exist for Donald Trump, whoever he is, uh, <laughs> that, that actually, if you really look at the sort of scale of probability, if we take a one to 10 uh, judgment as, as to where we're going to be in four years' time, with 10 being disastrous and one being sort of brilliant, I, I, I think we have no idea. And, uh, uh, but, but I would venture four to five. Um, I, 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 can it be as bad as we think it can be? Can it be as good as he thinks it'll be? Uh, the jury is out. But I'm very grateful to the ODI indeed for staging this because I do think we've covered some fantastically fertile ground and we're left with all the things that we need to think about as we go into these very uncertain times. So Ruben and Maha over there, um, Alex, um, Malcolm, Susan, thank you very much thank indeed uh, for participating and thank you above all to the staff of ODI for setting this up. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.